Can we get coffee sometime? You've probably heard that phrase before. I've had exactly one friend who asked me that because he wanted to try a, a local roaster that he'd found and was actually interested in the coffee. Generally, when somebody wants to get coffee with you, they want to talk about something, right? They got, they got something on their mind. There's something going on. Maybe they want to just talk about, the, maybe they want to discuss theology. Maybe they need some life advice or they just want to catch up because it's been a little bit while. Generally, a, a discussion over coffee is a, a great time, a great chance to catch up. And I, I always love getting coffee with people. But sometimes... Sometimes it's something a little bit more serious. Sometimes we need to talk about sin. We need to talk about reconciliation. And a little overpriced caffeine is exactly the thing we need to kind of loosen the mood and kind of set, set the tone. There's nothing quite as nerve-wracking as talking about reconciliation. There's nothing like talking about past sins, a past fallout, a broken friendship, an estranged family member. These are some of the hardest conversations to have. But no matter if you've sinned against someone else or they've sinned against you, trying to patch up these broken friendships or restore good terms with a family member can be overwhelming even in the best of times. This morning, we're going to be returning to Genesis 32. We're going to be returning to the story of Jacob. If you remember last week, he's finally escaped from Laman, his scheming uncle. He's made peace with him, but now he's returning to the promised land and he's going to be seeking to mend his relationship with his twin brother. His brother Esau, you'll remember, he's ripped off. He's cheated him twice. First out of his inheritance, now then out of his blessing. And Esau has vowed revenge. Esau has vowed to kill him. I think it goes without saying it's going to take more than a little bit of coffee to patch things up between these brothers. He's going to have to, to face his brother now. And he's going to have to make a choice. Is he going to trust God's promise? Or is he going to let his fear of his brother get the best of him? Turn with me if you haven't already to Genesis 32, 1 through 21. Jacob went on his way, and the angel of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of the place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. And when the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him in, in flocks and the herds and camels into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes into the, one of the camps and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O oh God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O oh Lord who is with me, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do good to you. I am not worthy of the least of the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children." You said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sands of the seas, to which cannot be numbered for a multitude. So he stayed there that night. And from what he, he had had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cattle, cows and 10 bulls, 
20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants. Each drove by itself, and he said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to where do you, Whom do you belong and where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? And then you shall say, These belong to your servant Jacob. They are present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third, and all who followed the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the presents that are going ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. This morning, I want you to, I want you to see that the main point of this text is that God calls his people to reconciliation. We're going to take this passage in three sections. The first, we'll look at verse 1 through 8, the need for reconciliation. Why, why do we need to be reconciled? And then verses 9 through 12, we'll look at the prayer of Jacob, and we'll see the process of reconciliation. What does it look like to be reconciled? And then verses 13 through 21, the meaning behind reconciliation. What is reconciliation pointing us towards? What's, what's really going on in this text? So look with me first. Verses 1 through 8, the need for reconciliation. So we see here in verse 1 that he meets with the angels of God. He's rejoicing. He's excited. We don't know exactly what the angels said. But we can kind of pick up from uh, his prayer here in 9 through 12. The angels are reaffirming the message. He's to go back to the promised land, and God has promised to bless him. He's excited. He's joyful. But it's worth noting that Mahanaim is not exactly on the way back to the promised land. He's, he's cut south a little bit early on the map. He's headed towards the land of Ser. So if you think about the nation of Israel, if you have a Bible map in the back, you'll notice that Esau has already moved away. Esau is not at home with dad anymore. He's moved out. He's got his own land now. He's in the land of Edom, which is going to become his nation of his children, his descendants. And he's in the land of Ser. And then right north of that is Mahanaim, somewhere around what's eventually going to become the tribe of Gad. So... Jacob here is cutting south to go see his brother. He recognizes that if he's going to go back to the promised land, he needs to deal with what happened 20 years ago. He's going to need to deal with the broken relationship with his brother. And it's important because Jacob could really just, if he wanted, have snuck around. He could have snuck in, up, gone north a little bit further, and then come down and gone back to the promised land, found his father, and then just pretended like nothing happened. But Jacob recognizes that he needs, he needs to make things right. He needs to be restored to his brother. So he is he's seeking him out. So he sends out messengers. He says, hey, I have lots of wealth. I don't want any trouble. Can we be friends? You know, can I find favor in your sight? So the messengers go out, and they come back. And he gets probably some of the worst possible news. Esau's coming to meet you. He doesn't have anything to say to you yet. But he's coming to meet you, and he has 400 men. He's got 400 men now that are coming out to meet him. And Jacob can put two and two together. Brother promised to kill me. Now my brother has an army. I'm in trouble. My family's in trouble. I'm going to die. This guy's coming to get me. And it's, it's worth noting here the implications of this text. Because you see, the enemies of God have, are seen to be slowly incre increasing at a faster rate than God's people. So the, the line between Adam and, a, and the future Jesus is in greater and greater danger, it seems, almost every generation. 
So we had, you know, Abraham, and then we had uh, Ishmael, kind of as a breakoff line, and then he kind of moved to the south, and now we have we have Esau who's building a nation, and his nation is now already a lot bigger than the nation of what's going to be the nation of Israel, and he's a threat. Plus the original Canaanites, it feels like God's enemies are multiplying faster than God's people. And, and this line is now in danger, and, and Jacob's life is in danger. But it's worth noting, too, that back in chapter 28, Esau did not have 400 men. He's married into Ishmael's family. He's been growing this army for 20 years. Jacob ignored his sin. He's been busy. He's had excuses. He's had reasons not to go back and talk to his brother. But it doesn't excuse the fact that he's ignored his sin for 20 years, and that 20 years has resulted in an army coming against him. Instead of seeking reconciliation with his brother, maybe give him a little bit of time to cool off and then seek reconciliation. He's run, he's hid, and now his sin has grown for 20 years and is coming to kill him with an army. And I think this is where we can begin to draw the first application. Because Jacob has let sin in his past live unaddressed, and it is festering. It has grown into a massive army. In his case, a literal army. Sin that is left in the past, that is not addressed, that is not repented of, that is not dealt with, doesn't stay gone. It doesn't stay in the past. It has a tendency to come back at the least opportune time. And so the first application I'd like to take from this text is that we are called to be watchful over the effects of sin and temptation in our lives, and, and especially sin and temptation in our past. You know, as much as we like to think that something that's 20 years ago is going to stay 20 years ago, it may not stay 20 years ago. It may come back. And sin that is not dealt with is a very, very dangerous thing. I think there's three ways we can apply this. First, it, it affects our own walk with God. The way that we've carried ourselves in the past, sin that is not repented of, sin that is not dealt with, can come back and affect our own walk. But more so than that, it can come against our family. So especially for, you know, for, for husbands and mothers, the way you conduct your life or have conducted your life can affect your children. Jacob's family, his wives and his, all 12 of his children are in mortal danger here because of something he did before they were even born, before he even met their mom. And now his children are in danger because he let his sin go unchecked. 1 Timothy 5.8. 1 Timothy 5.8 says this, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. For us to, to neglect our families, to allow our sin to be kind of shoved under the rug so that it comes back and affects our family is, is something that's condemned by scriptures. It is so important that as, you know, for singles who are engaging in marriage, for people who are married, that we treat our sin, all of it, our, our life, our experience, seriously, and we look for opportunities to, to repent of sin and to make things right. But even more than just that, we're called to live together in church, in relationship with the church family. Consider, uh, if you would, 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 11. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Note it doesn't say, pastors, make sure your church walks in unity. It says, all of you, if you're a member of this church, you're part of this body, you're called to walk in unity, to seek to do good, whether that's from your past or some other sin from outside, you're called to constantly be on watch. How can I protect my brothers and sisters as we come aground? 
We're all sinners. We all need each other. We all have struggles and temptations and things in our background that we're ashamed of. But we're called to walk together in unity, seeking to put aside division, seeking to put aside the favoritism, a lot of the things that we've seen affecting Jacob's family for these generations. So we can, we can look at these things and say we must be on guard as a church. And so these are, these are categories we can begin to think about. As, as Jacob is looking at his own life and the sins that he's neglected, he's seeing it now come against himself, his family, and the people of God that are represented by his family. So that's the problem. That's the need of reconciliation. This, this broken relationship that is ignored is coming against him. So let's begin to look now at the solution, the process of reconciliation. Uh, Jacob's prayer here in verses 9 through 12. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brothers, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sands of the seas, which cannot be numbered for the multitude. Now, it's worth noting that this is a descriptive text. This is a text that is telling us what happened. It is not a prescriptive, here's what you do if your family is coming against you or somebody else is coming against you. It's not that kind of text. But at the same time, from a text like this, we can begin to pull out principles and, and things that he's doing right, things maybe he's doing not as well, and, and begin to apply them to our own lives. I think it's worth noting that Jacob takes more or less three major steps. The first thing he does is immediately he breaks the camp. Esau could attack that very night. He's not sure exactly how close Esau is. So the first thing he does is, I need to make sure my family's safe. We're going to split the camp because that will at least provide us some level of, of safety and keep all the servants busy so they're not panicking and running away. And then as soon as everything's at least immediately sorted, he gets on his knees and prays. And he goes before God. He's honest before God. He, he talks to God. And we're going to dig into this prayer in, more in a second. But then after that, he's going to take some steps with these gifts. And we'll talk about that as well, too. But I want to take a minute and think about his dividing of the camp here. Because he prays, God, I'm, I'm afraid that my past is going to catch up to me. And Esau's going to kill not just me, but my, my wives and my children. His, his family is being threatened here. And I think there's a, a principle here that we can begin to kind of pull out of this where he's protecting his family. I think there's, there's, there's a thousand different ways to begin to apply this text, but I want to boil it down to, to two simple general principles that we can take from this. Because we see him first separate his family out, and then we're going to see him in chapter 33, verse 1. He, he, he goes in front, and then behind him he has his wives. And unfortunately, we see some sin. There's still some favoritism. He goes from least favorite wife to favorite wife, which is not a good thing. But he is still standing in front of all of his wives. He stands in the front and he puts his children and his wives behind him. And he's, he's groveling, he's begging his brother's forgiveness. And he's going to be the first to die. If his family is to die, he's going to die first. He's going to be in front. He's literally putting himself in front of his family and saying, you know, please forgive me and don't hurt my family. So there, there is some nobility in what he's doing, even if it's mired with a little bit of favoritism. But the general principles I think we can take from this, the separating the camp, his prayer for the safety of his family, him standing in front of his family is this. When you have past sin or sin in your life, even if it's present sin in your life, take whatever steps you can to protect your own family from your own sin. So especially if you have children or you plan to have children, 
take whatever steps you can to shield your children from the effects of your own sin. And there's so many ways to apply that, so I, I don't want to get caught up in lots of different examples because I could, I could be here all day and I could never run out of examples. But as a general rule, seek to find ways to shield your children, to protect your family from your own sin when sin comes upon you. When, when your past comes back, if you have unaddressed sin or you have new sin that has come that you've committed recently even, find whatever ways you can to mitigate the suffering of your children. Don't let your children suffer because of your mistakes. And the second principle I'd say from this is don't weaponize your family. You know, he doesn't put his children in front of him and try to, you know, use his children as a shield. We saw that a little bit further back uh, with uh, Lot and how Lot used and manipulated his children. We saw Laban using and manipulating his daughters for political gain. And, and here Jacob rightly puts his kids behind him. He says, no, I'm not using my kids as a human shield. I'm not putting my kids into war for me. I'm not using my wives in front of me. They're behind. I am taking responsibility for what I did. And so I'd say... First, protect your family from your sin, but also your family is not a weapon. And, and I think there's a practical obligation here. Because when somebody comes and says something to you, and somebody is, is rude to you or mean to you, or un, what's the first thing you want to do if you're married? It's go tell your spouse and get your spouse to kind of rally to your spot, side and, you know, come help me attack this person. Come attack their spouse. Or come help me get our children and say something mean to their children so we can start something. There, there's a, a sinful desire for for husbands and wives to kind of bring your spouse along as your tag team buddy so that you can go fight whoever it is who spoke cross of you. But that's not what we're called to do. We're not called to bring our spouse into combat with us. For those who are married, you're called to, to help, have your spouse help you to think biblically, to remember God's truth, to pray with you, to help you learn to forgive and help you see more clearly the situation. So I, I'd encourage you, you know, J Jacob, I think, gets it a little bit right here. Uh, in terms of saying, hey, I'm not going to use my family to go attack Esau. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't go tell one of his lies. He doesn't say, Rachel, Esau's coming to kill me. I want you to go tell Esau why he's a bad person and how dare he come attack me and how dare he bring an army. You know, he doesn't sick his spouse on his brother. He handles it and he goes forward and deals with it. And then we come to Jacob's prayer. And I love the way he prays here. You'll notice that he begins and ends his prayer with similar statements. He remembers God has promised good to me. He's remembering what God has said. And in the middle, he has his, he is like, here's, here's my circumstances. I'm worried about my family. God, protect my family. But most importantly, he recognizes that God, he is unworthy of what God has already done for him. When he crossed the Jordan, he had nothing. Now he has two camps worth of stuff. He has four wives and all these children and all these goods. God has been so good to him. Even as those last 20 years were hard, God has protected him. God has been good to him, and God has been the one to give him the increase. And so Jacob recognizes this. He recognizes that God has been faithful in the past, and that God has been faithful to promise him to be good in the future. His theology changes his prayer life. And I think this is where we can begin to draw application from this prayer. What you believe about God will change the way you pray to God, and how you pray to God is going to change the way you react when things are going wrong. When, when someone comes against you to kill you, or you just have, whether it's that or you're just having a bad day at work, what you believe about God will change your prayers, and how you pray will change how you respond. And so that's why it is so important for us to know God and to know the Bible, have a firm grasp on theology, because the way we understand and relate to God, the way we believe and understand his promises is going to change us so that we can stand before what seems like impossible. The only way Jacob 
is going to stand before a murderer's brother with an army of 400 men. I don't think anybody here has ever stood in front of 400 soldiers who probably want to kill you. Hopefully not. But the only way you could do that, because that sounds terrifying to me, the only way I could do that is if I believed in a God who was bigger than an army of 400 men. And that's what Jacob believes. He says, God, you have brought me through impossible odds, and you can bring me through it again, and I'm trusting you. Your theology matters. Your understanding, your relationship with God is what's going to change your prayer life and going to change your response in times of horrible trials. And so it's so important for us to see that he recognizes that God is going to be with him. And the next thing he does here is he gets ready for the long haul. And this, this brings us to our, to our next kind of point of application here. And that's that forgiveness is not going to be a one-step promise. Like I said, he's not going to go and get coffee with Esau and, you know, hey, I'm sorry about what happened all those years ago. Water under the bridge, right? You know, buddy, buddy. Sorry about that. That's not going to happen. He, he sets up wave after wave after drove after drove of animals. He's sending gift after gift. He's going to do whatever it takes to keep going, to, to long-term deal with the sin from his past. He's got 20 years of, of forgiveness to make up, and so he's got all of these, all of these droves going forward. And, and in our own lives, if you've, got, if you've got family members estranged or friends that you've fallen out with, you know as well, it's, it's not as simple as if I just say I'm sorry, or they just say I'm sorry, then everything goes away and it goes back to the way of normal. There's a process. There is, is work involved in mending relationships. It takes a while. And yet God calls us to pursue forgiveness and work. Look with me, if you would, at Matthew 5, 21 through 26 again. Matthew 1, 21 through, 20, 21 through 26, Matthew 5. It says, You have heard that it is said that those of old you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering a gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother is something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come in and offer your gifts. And see, this is where Jacob originally went wrong. He should have made things right with his brother instead of fleeing and fleeing to Laban for 20 years. If he had dealt rightly and quickly with his brother, then as you know, this passage is saying, he wouldn't have been drugged before this now grand jury of 400 men who want to kill him. And yet, as Jacob is returning to the promised land, the good things of God, the blessings of God, he is stopping and intentionally saying, no, I, need, I am remembering I have a problem with my brother. I'm going to make things right with my brother. And then I'm going to go to the promised land. And then I'm going to receive the gift of God. Then I'm going to make my offering. So in a sense, what Jacob is doing now is very much paralleling this passage. He needs to make things right with his brother. And then he will be able to receive the blessings. And if you look just a little bit ahead of that verse, uh, Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And here we see God promising that if, if you... You know, leave your gift if you go and you seek reconciliation with the one you've sinned against, that God will bless that. God will bless you as someone who is called a son of God. You will be marked as God's people by the way you make peace. Now, thank God, thankfully, this does not mean you have to force people to apologize so you can forgive them. And it doesn't mean you have to force people to forgive you when you apologize. It's not saying, you know, go and force people to be your friend. You know, you have to grab them and shake them and say, I'm not leaving until you forgive me. Or I'm not leaving until you apologize. That's not a pe- being a peacemaker is. What being a peacemaker is, though, is, is a heart condition. God cares about 
the state of our heart. Are we quick to forgive others? Are we quick to seek to apologize for others? One of the, one of the most beautiful things that's happened is when, when somebody comes to me and says, hey, Jared, I want to talk about something I said or did or emailed you recently. I feel like I might have been harsh or it might have been uncaring or unloving. Did that offend you? Did that hurt you? Was that sinful? Did that bother you? And, and almost every time it's been like, oh, I didn't even notice. Occasionally I did, but not always. And it, it's just, it's so loving and affirming when somebody's willing to make it awkward, willing to say, hey, I think I might have sinned against you. Did you, did you feel like I sinned against you? Because I want to restore that relationship if it has been broken. If I've, if I've hurt our relationship in some way, I want to take steps to make it awkward and to do the right thing. That, that just, it fills me with such love when somebody has that conversation. And oftentimes it's been something I didn't even notice. But it's so affirming and so loving when you, when you take those steps to say, hey, I don't want to hurt you because I love you and I care about you. You're my brother and sister in Christ. And I'd encourage you, you know, make it awkward. If you think you've offended somebody, go. That's why it says, if you think your brother has something against you, not if you have something against your brother. If you think you might have offended somebody, go to them and talk to them. And hopefully it is something as simple as they've already forgiven you or they didn't even notice. But if it is an offense, if it is something serious, if it is something that's going to take time to heal, have a heart open to continuing to deal with it, continuing to make things right. You know, if you've cost somebody money, how, how can you restore that? If you've hurt somebody's reputation, how can you help restore what, what's been taken? Working towards reconciliation. And, and if somebody has come against you, if somebody has sinned against you, seeking to reconcile to them. And the question begins, becomes then, how, how do we do that? How do we forgive people who've hurt us? How do we humble ourselves and have those awkward conversations? How do we make this whole thing happen? And, and, and you know, what, what's, the, what's the source of our forgiveness and our desire to seek forgiveness? So we, we kind of have that question here. And I want you to look back with me at Genesis, 23, Genesis uh, 32. And look, at, look now at our last section, the meaning behind reconciliation. What is it that fuels our reconciliation? So look at, let's look at these animals for a minute, and there, I think there's a clue here. Starting with verse 13. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants and sent them out in droves. So we see him sending out these droves of animals. You gotta ask, okay, so what does that have to do with anything, Jared? What's, what's up with these animals? Well, it's worth noting first, if you remember back in chapter 27, he got in trouble because of goats. You remember his, his mom said, hey, take a goat and make a stew, take a goat and make some clothes. So he took two goats to, get, to commit the sin, and now he's 220 goats and more animals after that trying to repent, trying to atone for the sin. So there's, there's a little bit of, I think, some holy irony in that sense. But I want you to catch what he says. He's got all of these animals lined up, gift after gift after gift. And notice, you'll see this in this next section. This will be next week's sermon. He's about to have his name changed to Israel. So the future Israel here is sacrificing, is giving up wave after wave of animals. Does that sound familiar? Israel sacrificing animals to atone for past sin. And, and notice what he says. I think verse 20 is so significant. Perhaps he will accept me. Do you hear that? He's recognizing something here. 
He's giving up hundreds of animals, potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars of capital. You know, all of this money, all these gifts, all these goods, a generous gift, huge chunk of his livelihood. And the best he can say is, perhaps my brother will accept this. There, there's a cry in this verse. There's a scream of, of me turning over a new lift, being a good guy now, returning to the promised land. You know, I'm, I'm trying not to be a bad guy anymore. I'm trying to give all these gifts. What's going to be enough? It, you know, does he need to add, you know, some extra gold to this or some more? Maybe, maybe 10 more do- donkeys. Or there, there's, what's, what's the extent of gifts to earn forgiveness? How do I make things right with my brother? Where does this need to end? Jacob doesn't know. And, and he's pointing out in this chapter to us, he's reminding us that workspace righteousness is never going to provide assurance of forgiveness. He's pointing ahead to the nation of Israel, to the sacrifices that we made at the temple over and over, year after year. The sacrifices will never be enough to fully pay for the sins of the people. And his sacrifice of all his animals is potentially not enough to even reconcile himself with Esau, much less with God. And so there's this cry, there's this yearning in the Old Testament. Where is the better sacrifice? Where is the payment that isn't a perhaps, that isn't a maybe? You know, you do all these things, all these good things. Where, where is the payment that's going to be satisfying? Where does reconciliation really lie? He's wondering and hoping. What could it possibly be? Hopefully you know, you, you know what the answer to that question is. Look with me, if you would, at Hebrews 10. In Hebrews 10, this question, this, this, this mystery is finally answered for us. The sacrifices of Israel over and over again. What are they leading to? If, if they're not enough, where does it all go? Look with me at Hebrews 10, 11 to 18. Hebrews 10, 11 and 18. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he had been perfected for all time those who were being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us and afterwards saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after all these days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and write them on my mind, on their minds. Then he added, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So we just sang a few minutes ago, right? The payment, a single payment is assured, is completed, is done. Jesus finishes the payment with his own body. Three days later, rises from the dead ascends to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father and says, it is done, I have paid it. Jacob sends hundreds of animals. And the best he can say is, perhaps even my brother will accept this. Jesus sacrifices once and for all his own life and says, God has accepted, it is done, it is paid. There is no more need for payment or sacrifice. Reconciliation is attained. Your relationship with God is restored. There's no question, there's no maybe, there's no, well, what about tomorrow? Reconciliation is achieved forever. There is, there is a forgiveness of these. There's no longer any offering for sin. And, and this is the hope that we have. This is the hope that Jacob was praying for and wanting and desiring with God. 
we see that Jesus' sacrifice is enough. And it's worth noting, 1 Corinthians 15, it makes the point that the resurrection of Jesus is significant. Because Jesus, in dying for our sins, rises from the dead. He, the tomb is empty. And he's seen by hundreds of witnesses. And, and, and 1 Corinthians says, go collaborate with the witnesses. There's hundreds of people who saw Jesus dead. He was medically declared dead by his enemies. They proved they killed him. And then there are hundreds of people that proved that he came back after that. He was walking and talking and teaching afterwards before he ascended to heaven. There's a receipt. I recently bought a van a few weeks ago or about a month or so ago. And I didn't leave the office until I had paperwork that said that the payment I made was good for the van, that I own the van now. When you go and buy a house, you don't leave the office until you have the deed, the proof of, hey, I worked hard, I paid you a whole bunch of money, that house is mine now, and partially the bank's. But there's an understanding of, I'm not leaving until I have the deed, the proof, the receipt. When you go to the grocery store, you get your groceries, you give up money, they give you a piece of paper, it's the receipt. This is proven. You paid money, you got goods. When Jesus rose from the dead, that was the receipt, the transaction of the payment went through, it didn't bounce, you're not going to get a call from the bank. Jesus says, I have paid it, and I can prove I paid it, because after I died for you, I came back from the dead. There was still money in the account after that. Jesus' death wasn't the end of his story. And it proves to us in a way that removes all of the perhaps that Jacob has. All of the maybes, all of the hopefullys. I, I hope God will accept me. I hope God is gracious to recognize my good deeds. Or I hope God recognizes that I, I really mean well or I've turned over a new leaf. There's no hope. There's no perhaps. There's assurance in the cross and especially in the resurrection that when Jesus says he paid it all, he means it. When he says it's finished, he means it. Because he's not still dead in the tomb. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He was witnessed. It was signed. It was sealed. It was documented. When you buy a house, you have to have witnesses. When you get married, you have to have witnesses. When Jesus rose from the dead, he had witnesses. And they went around and proclaimed, we saw it happen. He's back from the dead. He's not dead anymore. And his enemies, the, the enemies of the faith, tried to, to mess up the story as best they could, but they couldn't. They couldn't change the collaboration because all, all of the witnesses saw the same thing and didn't have to make anything up. There was proof. Jesus is alive. Therefore, what he said is true. When he said it is finished, it is finished. And this, rec this reconciliation we have with God is the answer. This is what fuels our reconciliation. Because if my relationship with God is restored, if I don't have to work to restore that, if I don't have to hope that my good deeds are something, if I can see that God has forgiven me and that God has called me to be a peacemaker and forgive others, then out of my own forgiveness, I can forgive others. Out of my own Forgiveness, I can begin to seek forgiveness from others. It flows out, again, of my understanding of God and what he's done on the cross. And this is why it's so important that we embrace the gospel, that we understand what Christ has really done for us, because that is what feeds our ability to forgive others. So whether it's a, a murderous brother who wants you dead or a coworker who looks at you sideways, you can seek forgiveness knowing that God has provided everything you need in Jesus and more. And this here is, is our atonement. And, and, and Genesis 32 is pointing towards that. There is no amount of animal sacrifice, no amount of good works, no turning over a new leaf and going back to the promised land. The point of this text is not go back to the promised land and God will bless you. But this passage points us instead and recognizes that reconciliation with God is going to cause us to seek reconciliation with man. 
If we are in a right relationship with God, we are going to want to be made right with those around us. We are going to want to repent of our own sins and to seek to forgive others when they sin against us. And what a beautiful freeing truth that is. It's not forgive people because that's the right thing to do. It's forgive people because God has forgiven you even more. And there's a beauty to the reconciliation of God. In conclusion, God calls his people to be reconciled, not just to himself, but to others. We are called to live together in an understanding way that is marked by forgiveness. This doesn't mean you have to be friends with everybody, but it does mean that you have to have a heart towards seeking reconciliation, seeking to be a peacemaker, seeking the best in others. God promises to bless his people when they seek to be peacemakers. But to seek peace with others, first remember that the peace you have comes first and foremost from your reconciliation with God. If there's anyone here who doesn't, who, who recognizes their separation from their creator, recognizes that lack of, of God's love and feels separated from God, and who doesn't know Jesus as the payment for their sins, as their redeemer, I'd encourage you to talk to somebody. Talk to me, the person you came with, a member of our church. We'd all love to share with you what it means to understand that Jesus loves you and has paid the price in full. It takes you off of that that endless treadmill of works and brings you into an understanding of a right relationship with God, your creator. The freedom that comes with knowing God and not having to fear your past or your future or your present. If anyone is struggling with reconciliation, it's a hard thing to to face reconciliation, whether it's with your uh, estranged family member or a friend, an old wound from your past that's coming back or afraid you're going to come back or a new wound that happened maybe even this week. I'd encourage you, seek somebody from the congregation to come alongside you. Find a brother or sister and say, hey, can we get coffee? I I need your help. I, I need help thinking through this. I know God is calling me to forgive, but I don't want to. It's hard. I know God is calling me to repent and to to humble myself, but I don't know what they're going to say. I don't know how they could forgive me. How do I think through my situation? How do I think through unbelievers? How do I think through all these things? God calls us to walk together in community and to love one another. So bring somebody alongside you and say, hey, could you help me think through these things? Can you pray with me? Can you help me to think clearly of the promises of God just like Jacob? Help me to remember that God wants my good He wants me to be known as a peacemaker. He wants me to forgive when it's hard and to humble myself and ask forgiveness when I really don't want to. So I would encourage you, seek seek out others to come alongside you and help and know that God blesses those who seek to make peace. Join with me in prayer and then we'll have a moment of silence before our, our final song. Father, thank you that our redemption, our reconciliation, is in Christ and not our own works. God, left to our own means, our sacrifice would not be enough. There's nothing we can do to be good enough for you. Like Jacob, all of the good good we have is unearned. And so we thank you, Lord. Thank you for taking pity upon us. Thank you for sending your own son to save us. Help us, Lord, to cling desperately to the cross. Help us to never leave the beautiful truths. Help us to dive deeper into your word. And God, I pray, that for, for everyone here who is struggling with forgiveness, that you would help them to forgive. Everyone in here who is struggling to apologize, to repent, to be sorry for their sins, that they would, they would seek to see their sins the way you see them. God, help us to lay hold of the blessings you've given us. 
as we seek to be peacemakers in this earth. Help us to be known as your people, as people of peace. Blessed name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.